around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. In a moment, I'm going to be joined by Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Horgan, and our reporter, Catherine Kennedy, as we review the news that we've been reporting on over the last month and explore the impact of COP26, which starts in just a few days, and look at what that will mean for civil engineers. Later on in this episode, our features editor, Nadine Badu, and I will be speaking to two special guests as we look at the role of construction contracts in creating a collaborative environment and how forms of contract developed in the UK are gaining favour worldwide. So Rob, this episode is going to come out on the same day as the spending review and hopefully the integrated rail crown, maybe, maybe not. So let's speculate about what we're expecting to be announced and what the industry has said it wants to see come out of that too. Hi, Claire. Yeah, you're right in saying slightly odd timing for our podcast to come out this morning. But of course, it would be remiss of us not to talk about the spending review and speculate a little bit about what we expect to be in there. Uh, As you mentioned, the integrated rail plan is, of course, what much of the industry has been waiting for, not just uh, recently, but for most of the year. It will hopefully clarify what the government's intentions are in relation to the eastern leg of HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail in particular. Whether or not we get to see it within or alongside the spending review is is a completely separate thing and anyone's guess really at, at this moment a week a week before the announcement um from the council leaders and industry insiders that we've been speaking to over the last month everyone's been saying that it could be out alongside the spending review or even just before it however a story has literally just dropped in the birmingham mail this morning which suggests that uh, that it's been delayed yet again and now won't be out until the middle of november which I think is interesting and potentially good news, actually, as as we've come accustomed to over the last year. This government likes to sort of leak out announcements and test the water, so to speak. Um, and in the last few weeks, particularly in the weekend national newspapers, there's been reports that the Eastern Leg will definitely be scrapped, that a through station at Manchester will be blocked and that Bradford will be taken out of the Northern Powerhouse Rail route, all of which have led to calls for the government to reconsider And perhaps that is exactly what the government is doing in delaying the report until November. Um, Obviously, that is hugely speculative and only time will tell. And I wouldn't want to put any money on it either way. Um, Away from the integrated rail plan, uh, I expect there'll be plenty of regurgitation of the recent spending pledges made in the net zero strategy, um, which includes uh, £120 million in funding for new nuclear sort of technologies, uh, commitment to one main nuclear power plant, which looks like it's going to be Sizewell C, uh, as well as £380 million for offshore wind and a whole host of other green initiatives that we will no doubt hear even more about, especially uh, in the run-up to COP26. So whatever comes out of the spending review, I'm guessing we'll be busy later sharing the news with NC's readers. Let's hope it brings some welcome news for the industry. But what's been less welcomed by NC's readers over the last month has been the ongoing saga around National Highway's undertaking of infilling of old railway bridges around the UK. 
We've covered Great Musgrave Bridge in Cumbria in detail so far, but there's also a bridge in Sussex that's coming under the spotlight too. What's happening there, Rob? Yeah, that's right. It's it's one of several stories that just won't go away for national highways at the moment. Um, in terms of Great Musgrave, the estimated cost of reversing the infilling has tripled with National Highways now saying it will cost as much as £90,000 to remove the concrete beneath the bridge and and up to £400,000 to fully strengthen the structure. But like you say, Great Musgrave is not the only headache within National Highways historical railways estate. Plans to infill Barkham Bridge in East Sussex are also leading to a lot of media attention after the council leader accused National Highways of running roughshod over the DFT-enforced pause on any bridge infillings. National Highways in response has said that the work is paused and it's not carrying out any work on the bridge at the moment however it has um, contractors have been on site they've um, done minor works to the bridge to stop bats resting within the structure Um, so there's a bit of a battle between council campaigners and national highways again and dft officials are being urged to get involved but national highways has issued a report about the infilling worker haven't they and they explain some of the decisions made, but they stand by them despite the outrage in the industry, don't they, Rob? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That report you're referring to specifically about Great Musgrave infilling, which has uh, caught most of the headlines and sort of most of the national attention. Um, and uh, the engineers who who work within the historical railways estate team uh, were kind enough to share the report with us and, and walk me through it earlier this week. In short, they give six reasons why the infilling was carried out and I'll, I'll quote from the report at this point um so the first one is that the weight restrictions that had been recommended in 1998 were never applied um which obviously led to further deterioration of the structure eden district council's local plan was reviewed and contained no policy specifically safeguarding former railway lines um, the third reason is that the condition of the bridge had worsened significantly between 2017 and 2020. Um, pointing was no longer sufficient on its own to provide full capacity and maintain long-term integrity of the arch. The fourth reason is that infilling avoided any disruption to the highway and the services carried by the bridge and enables Cumbria County Council to continue to use the route as an emergency diversion without restrictions. Fifth, Uh, Infilling has reduced the long-term liability and removed the risk from traffic overloading. And finally, infilling has preserved the structure until a long-term purpose is found. So there we go. That's the the six reasons that National Highways has given. um, Finally, sort of giving its side of the story after sort of, what is it, six months of criticism now? Was it June, June, July time, wasn't it? So... Uh, there's a there's a lot more detail in the reports about cost calculations um, and sort of a comparison between what they could have done if they hadn't infilled compared to the cost the actual cost of infilling. More detail on that is on NCE's website. So if this is a story you've been following, I would urge you to go and read that in more detail. Yeah, I don't think that story is one that's going to go away very quickly. People feel very strongly about engineering heritage, and it's that passion that's led to some great stories you've written this month, Catherine on the Department for Transport's Restoring Your Railway Fund. The first project delivered under that programme has been completed down in Devon. Can you tell us a bit more about that one and where the other projects funded under that same phase of funding are? Yeah, so an exciting moment, the Dartmoor line, which um, will, which connects Oakhampton to Exeter. It became the first former line to open under the fund at the start of October, that was. So you can now book tickets I think the services are are properly launching in November. 
and um, there'll be trains running every two hours and then that will increase to an hourly service from May of next year. So that was the first line, which was a big moment. And then there's a lot of other activities. So other other lines, the Northumberland line. So Network Rail has completed work to renew a section of track there um, in preparation for the project to reopen it. So that will reintroduce a regular service between Ashington and Newcastle. And it will, uh, the plan is, I think it should reopen by 2024, timescale wise, that one. Um, the Leavenmouth rail link, then work is ongoing on that. So this month, uh, work was completed to remove the old track and redundant infrastructure from that line. Um, work formally began in July, I think, and the, the plans had kind of been revealed in June. And various other plans are being drawn up. So York to Beverly line, been discussions on that one. The Portishead line is going through planning kind of stages, although the planning decision on that one was has now been delayed until April 2022, as of this week. Um, so a lot of activity, um, a lot of opinions on which line should be reintroduced, but it's quite exciting and a, a good one to watch. Yes, yeah, definitely exciting to see the Darnwell line restored. You've had a bit of a southwest focus this month, haven't you, Catherine? Because you also went down to Hinkley Point C to mark the fifth anniversary of work starting on site there. What did you learn while you were down there? Yeah, so I, I got an anniversary trip to Hinkley, which was nice. It was really interesting, actually, just to talk about the different milestones, different things that have happened, what the team felt were the biggest achievements over the five years. So things they mentioned were the lifts by Big Carl, which is the huge crane, so the steel rings for the reinforced cylinder around the nuclear reactor. Some of them have been lifted into place. Then there's been reactor pours. There's been work on the intake and outfall tunnels. So two of them, nearly three are completed. And they'll kind of form the cooling water system for the power station. Other concrete pours then for the six, the tunnel heads for those those water tunnels and then they've done a lot of work on precast innovation and prefabrication methods so it was um yeah it was really interesting just to be able to kind of think about what's happened and what the big achievements have been and when I was there actually the timing was good because it was just around the gas price hikes and all the energy discussions there so kind of the idea that nuclear could form an important backup to the renewables and um, if you know if wind and solar are a bit unreliable can nuclear actually have a really valid role to play in providing a stable base for the energy mix going forward so it felt like quite a timely visit from that point of view as well. One of the arguments against um, nuclear being a good option is that it's often expensive and delayed um, but they were actually saying then, well, you know, Sizewell is going to essentially be Hinkley Unit 3 and 4. And once we start replicating what we've done, that will mean there are less delays. It's going to be less expensive. So a lot of interesting chat around all of that. Yeah, so energy supplies and cost is something that has obviously been in the mainstream media over the last few months, as you mentioned there. And, and I expect it to stay there through, through this winter, especially with COP26 starting next week. Um, Claire, you've been leading our Countdown to COP26 series of articles online. Um, what, what is the civil engineering industry calling for? 
Well, they're calling for quite a few different things, as you can imagine. There are lots of different aspects to what the construction industry wants to come out of the climate discussions. And it's been really interesting talking to industry leaders ahead of authoring our series of opinion pieces on our countdown to COP26, which are all available on newcivilengineer.com. What's really hit home in commissioning these articles is the scale of the challenge and the responsibility that civil engineers hold in terms of delivering on the government's net zero ambition. There's a rubric focus on 2050, but I think really what happens between now and 2030 is really, really critical. At the British Construction Industry Awards um, earlier in October, I was reflecting on the challenge the industry has had in terms of dealing with the pandemic. And I said that those challenges really pale into insignificance compared to the climate crisis challenge. And incoming ICE President Ed McCann, who will be on our podcast end of next month, also spoke at BCIA. And he spoke about the role of civil engineers in dealing with the climate crisis. And he asked, what legacy will we create for tomorrow? He said that we face a decade of exceptional change. And it's the guidelines as to how to address that, which our series of articles have really called for. Uh, Ramble UK MD Philippa Spence has said that she's pleased that the conference is a physical one. And she outlined to us in her podcast interview earlier this year just how critical the face-to-face discussions are in getting agreement on such difficult topics. She's hopeful that COP26 will deliver a positive outcome if political leaders have the ambition and commitment to limit global warming. Philippa has said that the it will set the guide rails for industry and she's optimistically anticipating the, an acceleration in decarbonisation of our sector. Although I think if you think you can sit back and wait to be told what to do, that's far from the case. Tunnel engineering carbon reduction engineer Joshua Farnsworth said in his opinion piece that civil engineers must set the goals when it comes to carbon reduction and in infrastructure. He urged readers to consider changes to their lives over the pandemic and not to just return to the old ways of doing things, but take the time to think about what we really need for the future. Mm. Yeah, the Environment Agency uh, put it rather more starkly than that with the name of its latest report, Living Better with a Changing Climate, where the basic message was adapt or die, which you know is along the same lines as, as that message there. Um, the report warns of more extreme weather leading to increased flooding and drought, sea level rises of up to 780 millimetres by the 2080s and public water supplies needing more than 3.4 billion extra litres of water per day by 2050. The agency has urged governments, businesses and society to embrace and invest in adaptation rather than living with the cost of inaction. While the report welcomes the UK government's focus on adaption as well as mitigation, it urges more action at a global level to protect lives and livelihoods that are at risk. It also outlines five reality checks as they call them, which pretty much can be summarised as the Environment Agency saying, come on, everyone, we, we need some help. We can't do this all on our own. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting is that the decisions made at COP26 won't just affect how we design and deliver projects, but will also have an impact on how they're financed as well. So, the yeah, a kind of useful opinion piece that we ran on this Arab's head of economics, Filippo Gado, he has said that the net zero commitments and actions that will flow from COP26 are likely to converge and kind of redefine economic innovation. So that, he says, will reset the landscape in which investment decisions are taken. So he has four distinct strands that will become the what he describes as the shared texture of future investments. So those are technical, financial, social and policy innovation. 
And to succeed, he says, investors will need to make decisions in light of all four of those priorities and they're going to need to back solutions that demonstrate a kind of clear whole system thinking. So um, that's another interesting angle on it as well. So there's certainly some challenges ahead. I think it's really easy to sound like doom and gloom, but I think there's some real opportunities here. NC is part of the BBC's 50-50 project and I keep track of the gender balance of people quoted in our features or speaking at events. And there's a real difference when we have a focus on environmental issues. There are a lot more women working in those sectors and we can really see that in our figures we put forward for the 50-50 project, which I think means the greater focus on the environment across every part of civil engineering will surely create more interest in, in joining the sector and attract a wider pool of people than ever before. Yeah, and RPS is actually using COP26 as a springboard to promote STEM careers. So they have this climate career zone virtual learning experience, which uh, they say kind of brings the future of towns and cities to life and guides students through this interactive range of climate change solutions and career paths that would be involved in delivering those Solutions was aimed at 12 to 16 year olds and it features all this graphic and video content and ways of taking these big topics and making them easier to understand. It's available globally, it's accessible on the RPS website and then I think they're kind of delivering a programme of sessions around schools as well. So that's been the lead up but how can civil engineers get involved and learn from the event itself? Well there obviously there'll be lots of political discussions under it underway every day but exactly what the focus and how fast paced those will be only time will tell but there are a series of green zone fringe events planned at the Glasgow Science Centre and I've put together a list of the top 15 ones that I think would be of interest to civil engineers the full list was published on newcivilengineer.com on the 25th of October if you want to have a look at that and find out details how to join because you don't have to be physically in Glasgow for those discussions a lot of them are going to be broadcast live on COP26's YouTube channel. I won't run through all the top 15 here. I sifted through more than 200 events to find those, but here are my top three. I think the first one's really important as it focuses on applying the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to tackle the climate emergency. This one's hosted by the Women's Engineering Society and be held on the 8th of November from 10 in the morning to 11.30. The society says that engineers, environmentalists and asset managers must engage with all of the sustainable development goals in order to effectively tackle the climate emergency in a balanced and sustainable way. So if you're not already doing that, I'd urge you to listen in to understand how you should be using those. We Make Our Future is on the midday on the 9th of November and in the planetarium. And that's an interactive educational and entertaining science show for the next generation of engineers. So I think that one's a really interesting one. I think it, for people who are establishing their careers as well, it's quite interesting to have a look at that. The event will use full dome projection, digital projections to allow delegates to visit engineering marvels from history and explore the pros and cons of modern life, perhaps how things might have been done differently if those things were being built today. And the final one that I think is most interesting is hosted by the Construction Leadership Council from 9.30 in the morning to 11 on the 11th of November. And that'll be looking at the built environment and discuss the Construction Zero Industry Change Programme it is targeting the most impactful actions to mitigate 38% of global carbon emissions that are produced by the built environment and the construction sector. I'm really hoping that COP26 will be keeping us very busy over the next few weeks and we'll have much more to share with you in terms of the analysis in the next episode of the Engineers Collective. All the engineers I've been speaking to over the last few months really want the discussions to create a firm framework. 
under which the industry can move forward. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective. On the topic of frameworks, I think now is a good time to move on to today's interview with a look at the growing use of engineering contracts, or NEC as they're better known, which were developed by the Institution of Civil Engineers and the role of such documents in driving change in industry right from the start on projects. Joining me and Nadine, we have NEC User Group Chair John Welsh, who is currently Deputy Director for Construction at the Crown Commercial Service, and Andrew McNaughton, who has recently joined Axel as Infrastructure Lead. John's role with the Crown Commercial Service involves supporting government departments in delivering their construction programmes and is pioneering a collaborative working approach with industry, aiming to improve sector performance, achieving a fair balance between clients, contractors and subcontractors. Outside of the Crown Commercial Service, John has supported Jane Judith Hackett and her Industry Safety Steering Group in support of implementing her recommendations following the Grenfell tragedy. He played a critical role in the production and now implementation of the construction playbook on behalf of government, worked with the NEC on the development of the government boilerplate conditions and is a government construction board member as an advisor on construction, procurement and trends in the industry. Andrew has over 35 years of experience of delivering major infrastructure in the UK and overseas. He has recently joined Axel from Sistra Group, where he was Chief Operating Officer for five years and before that worked as Director of Engineering Construction for Tidal Lagoon, Swansea Bay. He has also held senior positions with Balfour Beatty and Keir Group. Andrew is a Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. He has also served as Vice President of the Institution of Civil Engineers and was previously named Civil Engineering Manager of the Year by the Institution. Last year, Andrew led a study on behalf of the ICE into performance of infrastructure project delivery that led to a report which was widely welcomed across industry and the subject of one of our podcasts in January on defining a systems approach to infrastructure delivery. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you. So before we start to look at the future and the challenges that are ahead, let's start off by talking about NEC's past. Now, the first NEC was launched almost 30 years ago now in 1993. Can you tell me how the contracts have evolved since then through NEC to NEC4, which was launched in 2017, and now with NEC4 Design, Build and Operate and NEC4 Alliance Contract 2? So, wow, yeah, 30 years, um, it's been a long time, but what I'm pleased to say about NEC is they've uh, they've continually listened to their users uh, and um, taken lessons each time and refreshed and updated their forms of contract accordingly. Um, they've always had a collaborative theme running throughout, uh, which is great, and, and that's just been continually built on. Uh, we've seen the latest iteration in NEC4, um, which now adds in um, and extends the family of contracts that were originally available. So as you iterate there, we, we do have the design and build and operate contract now, uh, which is part of the new family, um, which allows uh, allows users now to uh, start to integrate from a whole life perspective. 
the services required to deliver outcomes. Um, importantly as well as a um, subcontract element, so from a professional services point of view, uh, subcontract form has now been produced uh, because for me, uh, we need to start integrating the subcontractors um, far more as well uh, and flowing what is of use at um, sort of tier one level down is, is a real benefit. And of course, the term service contract, so something that is new, um, but is continually uh, being used uh, in, in different ways in industry. A term service contract allows that flexibility of clients to, to run quick call-offs to a point, um, sort of package-type works, which is a, a real benefit. But that's been done because of, again, the collaborative way NEC has produced their forms, uh, knowing that, that clients can um, build relationships and, and offer a term service contract over a, a longer period. Uh, and of course, dispute resolution services. So there's different ways now um, to adjudicate, if you like, informally. Uh, and what I mean by that are the um, dispute advisory board that's been introduced. Um, so this is a new secondary option in, in an EC4. Uh, and it allows all parties to um, to discuss certain situations, um, disputes on a, a less formal basis. Um, again, because of the collaborative ethos, it is allowing those conversations to, to take place, whether it's kind of at steering board level or um, uh, as a particular option to be included, uh, the dispute advisory board. So yeah, again, just pleased that uh, NEC are bold in taking lessons and, and continually refreshing their forms of contracts. I think for me, it's uh, it's very interesting. And take your point, John, completely. That um, you know, when you think back, thirty years, thirty years of uh, of NEC now, and um, it's uh, it's really interesting to see how it has developed. I mean, I was one of the early early practitioners as when I was on uh, HS High Speed One or the Channel Tunnel Railing because it was then in the in the mid to late nineties, and uh, it was uh, it was they were early early adopters, if you like, of the uh, of the the early phase of the contract. Um, your point around the sort of broadening of the suites of the contracts is, is really interesting as well, and uh, particularly coming onto the more subcontracting elements of it. Um, even more modern in more modern use use of it as well, looking at F FM, um, so that there's more services style contracts for for NEC. So so it actually really supports the life cycle of a, of an asset now, not just the the first time build, but actually the operation and maintenance of of an asset. So it really gives gives uh, asset owners the ability to utilize the the whole philosophy of the NEC um, right the way through the life of an asset. You touched on there about talking about the move away from an adversarial industry. We definitely see a lot less projects ending up in court these days. Is that really why we see NEC being seen as industry best practice now? Uh, so for me, uh, it's becoming more and more industry best practice because of um, this, the simple nature that the contracts are, are drafted on and the principles that surround that. Now, um, none of this is, uh, I guess, rocket science. However, um, trying to implement ways of delivering projects uh, in a proactive way um, isn't quite always what's achieved. But the NEC tries to do that um, in a particular way that allows parties to have conversations. So the contracts are drafted in plain English, they're, they're easily understood. Um, and the mechanisms built within it allow that um, approach to risk management um, in a very proactive way. Uh, there is one programme that's managed as well. Um, it's not, not always the case on, on projects. Um, there's multiple programmes at times where there shouldn't be. Uh, if everybody's working for to the aligned objectives and, and to achieve the same outcomes, then 
you know, let's do this uh, collaboratively and collectively using one uh, program uh, and therefore allowing all parties to, to build in um, the elements of, of risk. So um, whether that's an early warning event or whether that's a compensation event, then allow the program to be updated once um, and to be jointly agreed, which is, is really, really important. I think that's played a key factor as to why NEC is, is absolutely industry best practice I think that was one of the I think that was one of the fundamental principles you know when it set out you know straight after the the Latham report when it was looked at you know what we need is something to move away from the adversarial uh, attitudes that were were existing in the eight, the seventies and eighties and early nineties, um, and it, it really it really needed a change a real step change for for all parties for a contract to be able to work together. Uh, and John's right. I mean, this this the contract from the from, right from the start put in the the ability to collaborate. I mean, I think that was the most important thing. Was you know previous contracts didn't really have the mechanisms that would uh, allow organisations to collaborate. And I think as we move on and we go forward, and uh, projects are going to get more complex, and we'll come on to that, I'm sure. You know, the ability for multi-party collaboration rather than just a just a two-way two-way contractual relationship. Um, those mechanisms are really really important in in projects of today. Can you explain why NEC is the government's preferred contract approach and the benefits the approach brings for clients? Yeah, of course I can. So it's it's the preferred option um, for the government and is being used on multiple uh, infrastructure projects, key infrastructure projects like uh, like the HS2 of this world and, and likes of uh, big programmes for Hinkley Point C as an example and, and of course the Olympics um, some time ago. Um, because uh, it's recognised that this is a collaborative form and to achieve outcomes um, in a consistent way, then all parties need to work proactively together. Um, It's uh, less adversarial um, than perhaps other forms um, and therefore is is well received in in industry right up and down the tiers of the supply chain. Um, People become familiar with it, all parties become familiar with it, so it's consistent in its approach. Um, and I think you'll start to see more and more government projects um, utilising NEC. Um, we've recently had the uh, the four new prisons um, being procured using an NEC, um, which is is great to see. Um, I know the new hospital programme is being um, discussed at the moment, and, and there's conversations around using the NEC. But of course, I think it gives a flexible choice to all departments. So in in terms of the main options for uh, for pricing, um, then it allows different clients to best select a commercial model that best suits what they're familiar with and best suits their requirements at that time, whether that is a, a, I guess, a more traditional approach in terms of fixed price lump sum, but also a more collaborative approach from a a target cost perspective. So it offers such a a variety of of choices and is flexible in that approach, um, which means government departments use it uh, and use it very proactively and in the right way. And so, Andrew, from your industry perspective, what are the benefits of using NEC for those delivering the projects? Yeah, oh, there, there are many benefits. I mean, we've talked about collaboration um, and John, in his earlier answer, talked about risk as well. Um, I think the, the, just the mechanics of the way the, the, the uh, contract is set up uh, gives the opportunity for, for customers and client organisations to be able to, to map out what they believe the key risks are um, and then to... Uh, uh, appropriate allocate them appropriately 
um, rather than in previous uh, previous uh, forms of contract where there was there was almost a wholesale pass of risk to to the uh, to the supply chain. Um, this gives a real opportunity to look at what the risks are, understand how they how they would be managed, and then also have the mechanisms through through the, the likes of the of the early warning process to be able for everybody to to manage those risks more effectively, um, to make decisions better, um, uh, and therefore at uh, some far far better chance of the of the customer achieving the outcome that they uh, that they set out in the first place. Um, so the industry has, you know, has an opportunity through this contract to get a real insight into what ultimately the client is looking to achieve and what their key concerns are. Um, and then when we come to the incentivization mechanism, uh, people can be aligned to what those outcomes are and, and really perform properly. Thank you. Can you give us some insight into the proportion of UK projects and perhaps the size of schemes that use NEC today? So, uh, well, I'll try. Um, so what I don't have is the this, this statistics on uh, on what projects use NEC, um, but obviously it's broadly no, uh, known that um, this is used in, in multiple sectors across our industry. Um, and, you know, some of the size of the schemes I've, I've already briefly mentioned, we, we've had the Olympics, um, we've got the, uh, the the big nuclear programmes with Hingley Point C and, and of course HS2 I've mentioned. Um, but really importantly, it's not just the big infrastructure projects uh, that utilise NEC, it's flexible in its approach to allow smaller value projects um, to use it as well. I know um, a lot of our clients that, that talk to us about using our routes to market for them. Um, at lower value levels uh, use the different types of NEC that are available to them um, and they do this because it is flexible they do th- do this because that's what they're familiar with um, but their supply chain are familiar with it too so it achieves so many different outcomes um, regardless of, sort of size and scale of, of schemes um, yes we've got big but we've also got small and and what's important to me is the subcontractors start to become aware of, of the consistent approach that, that, that the departments are following using NEC. Um, for, for me as well, um, we're trying to break into uh, different sectors. So uh, I know that uh, our manufacturing sector uh, in our industry are, are now starting to use NEC a bit more. Um, and that means that we need to help and train uh, and um, increase knowledge and awareness of this type of form of contract because it is a proactive contract management um, format uh, and needs to be managed in in the right way. Otherwise, um, we will find ourselves in the positions where things can't be delivered um, consistently. Uh, but the, the bravery of the departments and the bravery of the suppliers means that they're, they're happy to try new forms um, like NEC and and build on that capability and credibility in uh, in a different type of sector like manufacturing. And I think that's a really good point, John, um, about the smaller contracts, uh, particularly also for infrequent clients. I think that the ability to actually pick up and use the, the contract um, and the evolution of the contract through into NEC4 as it, as it is now and, and those uh, bringing in the, uh, the the short forms of contract and and the subcontractor contracts, it, it's really giving it's opening up the ability for people who may not have used it in the past because they thought it was it was uh, restricted to the to the large more complex projects. Um, they can really see the benefits right the across the board. So it's uh, it's something that uh, is being picked up more and more for the, for smaller contracts, and it works equally well. I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't. That's really interesting. That it's gaining ground with other users. But it's also gaining ground with construction projects worldwide, isn't it? NEC is now being adopted internationally too. Can you give us some examples of projects globally that are using 
the approach and why NEC is gaining the international following it is? Uh, yeah, of course I can do. So, wow. So the international usage of NEC has, has increased um, significantly over um, a, a short period of time now. Um, NEC uh, has a, a great relationship in in uh, with its Hong Kong counterparts, um, in public sector clients in particular, uh, and there's a users group. Um, it does cover Hong Kong and, and other international um, areas, so it's it helps that we can be consistent in how we deliver the training, uh, and how we help achieve public sector clients uh, deliver their their outcomes and. I think the, the benefit, one of the big benefits um, of the way the contract's been drafted, uh, which allows its use internationally, is the um, the simple way it's been drafted. I think I mentioned before that the plain English type approach is, is easily converted and easily understood because the principles around NEC um, and the stimulus to, to good project management, as it says, um, is, is transferable. Um, and everybody, uh, every user should adopt those principles um, in a way to achieve a proactive management of contracts and projects and programs um, to help achieve and, and deliver their requirements. So some of the examples that NEC has been utilised on ac- across um, the international waters now are, are phenomenal. We've got um, the South American Lima um, 2019 Games. Um, which which was huge, um, you know, they've used NEC uh, and in Belgium as well, where it was used for um, construction of a three billion pound ring road, uh, which is a dual carriageway, which includes tunnels and, and elevated sections. Uh, we've got work across uh, South Africa as well. Uh, we've got work in Australia. Um, so Sydney Water have chosen to use NEC4 for its procurement strategy and, and, and also Main Roads, Western Australia as well, have successfully trialled NEC. Um, so I hope I can help continually raise its profile and, and gain its usage further across um, uh, yeah, across its, its international use, which would be really helpful. I think the uh, the uptake, particularly in, and having worked extensively in in Hong Kong myself, you know the um, the uptake, particularly from uh, by MTR, but also by uh, by the Hong Kong government, um, they're looking at, at a way forward because there have been periods in in operating in, in Hong Kong where there have been particularly adversarial contracts and and the outcomes have, have, have not been pleasant for for either party, to to be frank about it. Um, so it's it's great to see that the, rather than carrying on with the same old thing. Um, they've been really open to, uh, to to looking at alternatives, um, and uh, and the uptake of of NEC, and not only just the contract, but I think one of the, a really important thing is the training that goes alongside it. Um, you know, like any contract, people need to understand it. It is in plain English, but we've got to understand how it's administered. And so I think the uptake, in, particularly in training um, that's being done um, internationally as well, is is really helpful. Uh, in, in in that way, and because it's in plain English, I think uh, you know when we've seen it used in in Lima uh, and and other projects possibly coming up in in South and Central uh, America, um, where predominantly the language is you know either Spanish or Portuguese, um, it, it's really it's really good to see that this this could be used in those environments and potentially uh, not just in English. We can we can take it into other languages. 
And so you obviously touched on the point, the importance of collaborative working and, and transparency. So over the last year, we've seen quite a few new documents and guidance coming through calling for or, you know, to drive change in the industry with more joined up thinking, better collaboration and a call for more efficiency and productivity. Can you tell us what role NEC has to play here, especially in relation to the construction playbook? And does it remove commercial barriers that often prevent true collaboration and openness? So, yes, we have. We've seen lots of documents um, drafted uh, more recently, I guess, on on sort of collaborative procurement and, and breaking down those barriers. And NEC plays a vital role in this. Um, it does proactively um, recognise the need for um, contract management, um, simply the mechanics within it, firstly. Uh, so your continued reporting, your response um uh, provisions, I, I guess, drives the right way to deal with situations. So the early warning provision for me is is of real benefit. It allows early conversations um, with all parties to help identify and mitigate um, risks, issues um, that can occur. Um, but I think another important point actually is um, is the use of the different options now that we see in, in NEC4. So the multi-party um, option, the uh, secondary option, uh, which is available to, to users now, um, shows and demonstrates how bringing in different parties, whether it's um, professional advisors, whether it's sort of FM providers as well, um, into a contractual situation to help achieve um, common goals and objectives um, really breaks down that, that barrier and, and allows um, all parties to work, um, you know, in, in a mutual and, and trustworthy way. Um, we obviously, I've, I've mentioned a bit earlier about the um, the new dispute, dispute avoidance panel. So a, a really proactive way of trying to deal with conflict um, in a sensible way before um, before enacting any sort of formal dispute resolution procedures around adjudication or, or anything beyond that. Um, so I think NEC, is, as I've said, has learned really uh, around the usage from previous versions and continues to build on that. Um, you mentioned the playbook there. Obviously, that has a um, a, a significant part to play now in, in the improvements of our industry. And, and that talks about alliancing. It talks about long-term programmes of work, um, publishing pipelines, etc. And um, NEC have just published the alliance contract or recently published their alliance contract. And this will go a long way to help um, clients and, and the respective supply chains uh, form quite strong bonds, really open relationships to develop um, solutions to deliver outcomes um, for the benefit of society. So it, it's going to play a huge role, um, already has done to a, to a degree uh, in removing those barriers and helping to drive a more collaborative, open approach. I think the uh, one of the things for me, I mean, it, it, under its its basic ethos, basic ethos, um, and the philosophy of, of NEC is around collaboration. You know, even from you know from the outset in the in the opening clauses of the contract that says you know we'll use mutual trust and and, and cooperation. Um, you know, in it of itself, you know, it, previous contracts didn't start with that with that premise in mind. Um, it's it starts previously with you know there'll be a contract between two parties. Um, whereas this one actually sets out from the start that there'll be collaboration. But what we've got to also remember, and I go back to my training point, is is like anything, everybody needs to know how to collaborate. Um, so it's it's important. This is this of itself is a contract, um, and it's it's a mechanism of working. 
but we've got to also look at all the parties such that they uh, they have a maturity that they, they can and will collaborate. Um, the contract of itself can't make people collaborate. It's, it's, it's a mechanic to allow us to do it. But we've all, we've all got to enter into the relationships with the knowledge of how the, how the contract will work and also with the knowledge of what we're trying to achieve from, uh, from, from, from the outset for, for the asset we're creating. You just outlined there the fact that it's a legal framework. It can't force people to collaborate. It's also it's about setting the right behaviour and mindset. How does the new form of contract set about doing that and getting that in place? So right at the outset, um, the NEC talks about working, you know, in a spirit of mutual trust and cooperation. Uh, it does go on to say in accordance with the contract, but the mechanisms within that contract allow the way for parties to start to contribute in a more collective way. Um, I think for me, teams need to be set up um, and established right from day one at the outset um, in a way that is done so for success. And I know that sounds perhaps an obvious statement to make, uh, but too often we see bid teams handing over bids across to project teams to deliver that aren't quite ready or handover is insufficient and and you might see one project manager and um, one supervisor on site and and that's it. Um, But the reality is all parties um, need to be established from from day one. Um, The behaviours need to be set and achieved in the right way, um, whether that's things like charters or or things like um, uh, um, sort of behavioural interviews, etc. Making sure the right teams are in the right positions and roles um, to deliver successful outcomes. I think for me the the alliance the alliance contract as well is a, is a, is a major recognition of how undertakings in in the infrastructure world particularly but, but are are becoming more and more complex um, and it's, it's a complex interaction um, no longer is the traditional parent child relationship in contracting a flow down from a from a customer to a prime contractor to sub subcontracts. Um, you know, there's the, uh, there are many, many subcontractors now, and John mentioned about manufacturers. I mean, increasingly, you know, a significant part that manufacturers have to play within, within the role of a project, particularly where technology is involved, and we can, we can come on to that in a moment, I'm sure. Um, so it, that alliance contract allows multi-party collaboration. So it allows to set the, uh, so that everybody can understand the outcome across the whole of the supply chain. Uh, and to set the, the incentivizations appropriately right the way across the team. Um, and, and I think team is the right word for that. You know, it, as an alliance, it's, it's about bringing all the parties together um, under a single goal um, and therefore, you know, with a single set of objectives. Sounds great. Andrew, you wrote the report for the Institution of Civil Engineers on the need for a systems approach to infrastructure. And that's already been discussed on the Engineers Collective and it was really well received. by the general industry and also by our listeners on the Engineers Collective. Can you tell me about the role NEC plays in delivering on the vision you set out in that report? Yeah, I guess I, I guess I've just touched on it a, a little bit when talking about talking about alliancing there. Um, you know, the, the NEC uh, the NEC contract because of the because of its collaborative nature and because of the the ability to set out risks um, and how they will be managed. You know, at the core of a systems approach is where all the elements come together, um, and it's the interfaces that that um, that will often cause the issue. 
Uh, so having having multi-party contracts and using the NEC philosophy around that, it allows each of the interfaces to be captured, to be managed, accountabilities on the interfaces to be to be identified, and the, the right incentivizations set out so that everybody understands their role they play within that team, um, so that the uh, the system can be completed and commissioned um, at, at the time it's it's appropriate to do so. Um, so I think you know more and more that the use of, of NEC and the multi-party nature of it um, is going to be incredibly helpful as as projects become more and more complex. You know we couldn't have a conversation about the NEC about without the the early warning mechanism, and I come back again to the education and understanding of how the the NEC operates. Um, I think. This is an area where there's still still work to do, and I think the user group has got a, a lot to to uh, to contribute to this, um, to make sure that people understand the early warning process is about flagging up issues that could be a concern to the overall delivery of the project, as opposed to some form of commercial mechanism. Um, too often, as the as projects have evolved over the last thirty years. Unfortunately, the, the early warning um, system has not been used necessarily as it should do. And I think going forward, when we get to these uh, projects where they are increasingly complex, um, the use of that warning system so that each party can understand the role they play in making sure that uh, the actions need to be taken to avoid risks occurring, um, it, it's a superb mechanism when it's, when it's actually applied properly. With that in mind, can you talk me through some of the other common mistakes that people and projects make when applying the mechanisms that NEC puts in place? Andrew, I'll pick on you first. Yeah, that's that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I think um, as it's administration is 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 one thing that that people have to understand. Uh, it's it's written in plain English, or you could say it's written in simple English, but but it, like any contract, it's not a simple mechanism. Um, you know these projects that uh, infrastructure projects are complex undertakings um, and therefore the, the management of the contract whether it's the elements of, to do with program whether it's elements to do with the, the commercial aspects they need to be managed properly um, in the early days I can remember back in the 90s the early days everybody thought oh great we've applied NEC we've got an easy contract it's 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 no easy it's no easier to administer than, than in any other contract and so for me that's that's the most common mistake is people people underestimate if in a complex project the de- degree of management that um, that the contract still requires um, if you enter into it with that with with a view in mind that it, administering it properly whether it's the commercial aspects or other aspects of it um, it is a straightforward contract and it avoids disputes um, but it has to be managed properly if it's administered the way it's supposed to be administered um then contracts will be delivered successfully. And, and what I mean by that is don't be afraid to use the mechanisms that um, the, the NEC provides. So those regular um, early warnings meetings, um, those, those regular programme review sessions need to happen. Um, and people raising early warnings, uh, you know, are doing so for the right reasons. Um, it's not to generate claims. It's not to generate change. It's not to look for opportunities that, these are actually risks that uh, projects see and come across uh, and therefore need to be dealt with in a, in a proactive way. And I think I've certainly seen on NEC projects I've worked on um, where actually it's too late. The risks have, have come to fruition with no opportunity to mitigate them. 
Um, and then um, teams, commercial teams in particular, end up looking backwards to try and resolve situations commercially. And and, and that's not a great place to start from. Um, that then detracts your opportunity to look forward um, on progress. Um, and actually, you end up in a, a vicious circle and of, of trying to do deal with things retrospectively, which is, is not what the NEC is about, um, quite rightly. So, yeah, that's definitely a, a, a mistake I see. And a lot of the time when we're writing for NCE, the only times we come across details of NEC is when a contract has just been awarded or if things go wrong and the parties involved end up in court. So do you think that enough people in the industry have an awareness of the forms of contracts and the implications of these and the benefits that they can also bring? So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point, actually. There's there's probably only two occasions when we, we see things in in probably in life actually one is when something's gone well uh, and when there's a big announcement um, but you're right also um, in the press when something's gone wrong um, there's always opportunity for somebody to to pick at something um, so we need to do more we can always do more um, to, to promote awareness um, there's training is definitely a point Andrew's mentioned it a couple of times now um, the users group itself has developed such great training modules and, and methods uh, that users adopt um, and users need to share as well, um, share broader and wider, um, because actually if, if the training is being received in a consistent way, then the administration of the contracts will be delivered in a consistent way. Um, so that's really important for me. Um, I would encourage the, the NCE readers um, to become a member of the NEC users group, um, see what newsletters uh, are being produced and promoted and, and look at the articles that are available to them there. Um, and reach out, get in touch. There's different types of membership, but really there's a lot of resource within um, the NEC users groups, which which really, really help users. Um, so, yeah, we, we can always do more. Um, so, yeah, watch this space. Hopefully we'll, we'll continue to uh, increase its awareness. I think, the, I think the important point that John said there is we can always do more. Um, Clearly, you know, as as we've said on this on this podcast, that the you know the the, the uptake of, of the use of NEC has has grown you know significantly over the over the last uh, thirty years, um, and the and the knowledge and understanding of it has also grown. Has has it grown at the same pace? It's difficult to say, um, but certainly what we what we have to acknowledge is that um, we need all of the people who are using it to have a to have a good knowledge of understanding of how the, how the contract is applied. Um, it goes without saying, you know, training is is, is out there, and, and we've said that a couple of times today. Um, but also sharing knowledge, sharing knowledge amongst uh, colleagues, so that uh, good practices and and better practices are are developed. And as I say, I think that's why the the user group has got a, has got a great part to play. The user group has been instrumental in developing the contract itself. Um, it's also been instrumental in, in developing the kind of tools and techniques that people people can pick up to to make sure they they apply the contract correctly. Um, but we we can never stop. We can always we can always do more. So on the subject of more work to do, and I know it's not that long since you brought out the latest versions of NEC. I think it might be interesting to look at where the next generation of contracts might go and what that might bring. One thing I often hear from industry is the need to move away from using price as a bidding factor. Is there a way a new form of NEC could help leverage that, or do you have other changes in mind for the next generation? Um, good question. So again, we will continually learn from our users, um, as we are doing always, and, and we've, as we've said, we've not been afraid to refresh um, forms of contract. 
So we're always looking, I guess is the point here, you know, do I know today what the next iteration is going to look like? Um, I, I think it will be a continual build on collaboration. We've got the construction playbook launched now as, as government. Um, I think it need, we need to learn from that. We need to learn what the 14 policies um, are and how they're likely to be implemented better. That way, I think NEC um, stands itself in good stead to be right at front and centre of, of developing what likely changes um, are, are due. Um, we've got the Alliance contract that's, that's now uh, available. Um, hopefully that will help sort of the longer term programmes um, to be procured and delivered in a, in a collaborative way for longer term benefit. Um, you've touched upon um, uh, pricing as a, as a bidding factor here and, and yes, it's a topic of conversation in, in most discussions I have. Um, there's many different ways to to deal with pricing, um, and yeah, let's hope hope NEC again listen and learn um, from everything that goes on in these particular conversations. We've obviously got the procurement rules reform likely to be published um, soon, following uh, us leaving the the EU, uh, which will hopefully be able to facilitate and and address these types of situations. Um, so yeah, keep keep close to us, um, and yeah, we're definitely keeping in mind the, the changes in industry at the moment. So for me, I, I think there's two two things two things for me. I mean, we, we talked earlier about the, um, the the FM contract, for instance, and and the the uh, the, the evolution of NEC into into service style contracts. Um, I think the future will be when we're, when as I said earlier, when when an asset owner looks at the asset through its life. Um, and, and adopts the philosophy of NEC from start to finish. Um, you know, we haven't seen we haven't necessarily seen uh, it, it used in in as much in in decommissioning style contracts. So, when we get to the point where um, infrastructure assets have life cycles rather than a life cycle, um, I think that's where we will see that philosophy and. So certainly when we move more into the digital workflow associated with the contract as well, um, we'll see some much more efficient and effective management through life. I think that's the, that's the development way forward. Um, in terms of cost, we've got, an issue, we've got a, an issue that says whatever happens in the public sector, when, when public sector procurement is going, we've got to demonstrate value for money. And I think that's the key for me, and particularly as we move into more complex projects, is, is the demonstration of value for money. And I think the way the, the, the contract is set up, both the way it's for collaboration, but also for our proper allocation of risk and incentivization, um, I think we can, it's, it's the, the contract that can be able to demonstrate value for money in a, in a far, far better way from the outset. It sets out the outcomes, it sets out what people are aiming to, to achieve and to be able to manage, manage those interfaces. Um, you know, cost is always going to be important. We cannot escape that. Um, and, uh, uh, but I think when we focus on what the outcomes are stated and then looking at value for money, then the use of the suite of the NEC contracts can really contribute. Thank you. It's going to be really interesting to watch how the contracts evolve. I think that's just about all we've got time for today. I've really enjoyed exploring the detail behind the contracts. I think it's something we never really look at on NCE other than when it's actually a particular project. So it's really interesting to see what, how you can make it possible to better deliver projects and create proof your outcomes for all. So do join us again for another episode of the Engineers Collective soon. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation 
of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.